Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't, that's okay. We're going to have uh, outline and, and the scripture and everything on the screen behind us. There we go. And uh, we're actually beginning a new series today that I'm calling Rebuilding a Broken Faith. And uh, it, it is uh, a kind of a reference, a, a nod to something going on in our culture right now that's called deconstruction, people deconstructing their faith. Have you heard, have many of y'all heard of that? Deconstruction, deconverting, sometimes deconverting, that's where some people go with it. But deconstruction is basically... Um, asking really difficult questions about foundational issues pertaining to your faith. That's really what it's about. Asking deep questions that are about foundational things pertaining to your faith. We're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks and show you kind of, you've heard of people leaving the faith and deconverting, and there seem to be a large number of people doing that. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But I think sometimes when people use the word deconstruction, it sounds like it's a bad word. Um, but it's really not a bad word because at some point all of us have to deconstruct what we previously believed as we're growing in our faith. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul that we're reading this morning, uh, at one point he was a first century Jew. He was a Pharisee. He had very strong and firm beliefs. But then he encountered an event in real history that he could not deny. So what that forced him to do is to ask foundational questions about what he believed and why he believed it and to begin to put those pieces back together with the resurrection of Jesus at the very center of it. Right? There have been plenty of people in the United States who have been deconstructing their faith and taking it apart. And one of the th- pieces they take out is the resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, there have been plenty of people in the history of Christianity throughout the world, throughout time, who have... Uh, sought to disprove Christianity, but when they come to the resurrection of Jesus, they realize this is too solid. This is too historically verifiable. I can't escape from this reality that a real Jesus was really resurrected in real time and space history and has real ramifications for real people living today. And this passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians 15 is really uh, one of the most important passages because one of the things it says is, this was not a metaphor. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not a metaphor. It was not a myth, but a real historical event that is, uh, was verified by multiple eyewitnesses on multiple occasions. So that's what we're looking at this morning and its ramifications for us. And uh, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1 and end up with verse 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Okay, Yuval Noah Harari, um, author that I was not familiar with, just got a new book in the mail uh, from Tim Keller about hope. It's been a fantastic read, but in the very first couple of pages, there's somebody named Yuval Noah Harari who wrote a book called Homo Deus, which instead of Homo sapien, it means Homo Deus. It's the God, God people, God men. Uh, men like God. And so in his 2017 book, by that name, uh, he wrote that in ancient times, human beings turned to gods only because humans did not have control over the world around them. So they needed gods to pray to, to help them as they dealt with the hard things in life. But uh, Harari, uh, he asserts now that we have control and we don't need those gods. And so this is a quote from, from his book. At the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to reign in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. That was written in 2017, and then came 2020, right? And all of a sudden, we're dealing with the prospect of worldwide famine, we're dealing with the pandemic, and we're dealing with war spilling over from U Ukraine into Europe and maybe into the rest of the world. And so we don't want God, and we pretend we don't need God, but we really do, and life without God even when you're not in a 2020 and post-2020 situation, it's still pretty bleak. Because if there's no God, all the other things that make life worth living are gone. This is from an atheist physicist and cosmologist named Lawrence Krauss. He said, The picture that science presents to us is, in some sense, uncomfortable, because what we've learned is that we are more insignificant than we ever could have imagined. You know, put that on Instagram or, you know, or your Pinterest you could get rid of us and all of the galaxies and everything we see in the universe and it will be largely the same. So, we're insignificant on a scale that Copernicus never would have imagined. And in addition, it turns out the future is miserable. So the two main lessons that I like to say is first, we're insignificant and second, the future is miserable. And then he goes on to say that we can have meaning but it's a meaning that we have to make for ourselves, which is the same thing as saying that we can pretend we have meaning when we really don't. And that is the spirit of our age. It's the quest to invent meaning and truth and morals and identity for ourselves. You do you. No one else can tell you. You have to decide for yourself. And the question is, how is that working out for us? Let me ask you. 
Why do you think that we in the most technologically advanced civilization in the history of the world, with the most access to food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, and basic necessities, who have the greatest capacity for instant and constant connection to other people and entertainment, are having a mental health crisis like never before seen in the history of our country? That feels incongruous, right? How can people who have so much feel so empty? But we do. And into this emptiness and darkness, a, a whispered claim comes. There is a God. He loves you. He took on human flesh. He lived a human life. He died a brutal death. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he is coming back. And believers will rise from the dead. And heaven will be here. And what is coming then is better than what we're experiencing now. And because of that, there's hope. And this is all confirmed in the real-world resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 15, verse 33 and 4 here, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what he's telling us is we have a larger story that's bigger than our lives here, that's 70-odd years that we might have here, less or more. But the story of you and the story of me is bigger because it's found in the story of the everlasting God who has promised us that we will be with him forever uh, when we die by faith in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is real and changes everything. Yes, we are part of a larger story, a larger reality that includes science and technology and astronauts and famine and plague and war and miracles and resurrection in heaven. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next uh, several moments is talking about this. Now, um, uh, you'll have outline up on your board and things, but before we start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, I need to kind of say something to you because I hear this more and more from people is uh, there's this idea that's growing in the modern meaningless culture in which we live is that when you die, you just cease to exist. That's it. You just cease to exist. It, the, the, the power goes down, and you're just an inanimate thing. There is no you, there's no I-ness that goes to be with Jesus at all. There's nothing after you die. But again, the resurrection of Jesus and what he says and what he proves shows that that's not true. Because when Jesus was on the cross, and some of you are familiar with this called the thief on the cross, that, that little explanation, there's a man with Jesus who's dying on the cross, and he says, when you show up in your, your, your paradise in heaven remember me. And then Jesus says, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What Jesus is communicating is, yeah, you're going to die on this cross, but you and I are both going to go into the presence of the Father. You and I are both going into heaven. At the transfiguration of Jesus, when his glory shines through his skin, he glows in the presence of his apostles, his deity come through. There are two people who stand there with him who've been dead for centuries, Moses and Elijah. They're standing there talking to Jesus, though they have not been around for centuries. Why? Because our lives go on after we die here. That's what the Bible asserts, and that's what Jesus proves by his own coming back and his resurrection. So here are eight uh, biblical truths about the resurrection. And I, you know, I can read these. They're kind of bullet points on my outline up here. But as we're reading through, I want you to put yourself into that, right? 
Some of you, you know, there, there are apps online. You know, you can put that couch in your room online and it's not really there. It's virtual, right? I want you to kind of like virtually put yourself into these scenarios because the Bible says these are truths that are true of you and me and all those who uh, may call upon the name of Jesus Christ. The first one, death is an enemy and not a natural part of the life cycle. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26 says, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So imagine death as a bully or an opponent over you, and Jesus steps in to rescue you and save you. That's the image from Scripture, right? So I'm there, virtual me. Jesus has, I have an opponent who's coming against me, and Jesus is going to deal with it. Second biblical truth about the resurrection. God loves us and sent his son to redeem us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us and sent his son to redeem us. Three, Jesus has conquered death for us so that we are no longer under slavery to fear to death. We don't have to worry about death. You know, it's going to come. It might be painful. It might, you might just sleep right through it and sleep right into it and enter into God's presence. But we don't have to worry about it because we know the rest of the story. Jesus has conquered death. Four, all who believe in Jesus are forgiven and will be resurrected. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over from death to eternal life. We go to be with him. That's in John chapter 5, 24. And and, uh, number five, Jesus will come back with all those who believe. If you want to do a little reading about that today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is one of the best passages that talk about that. So the people we have loved, they'll come back and we'll come back with them and we'll be here. And we will have, this is number six, we will have resurrection bodies. When Jesus showed up, he wasn't a glowing light. He wasn't an angel. He was still a human person with a body and he ate fish, right? So Jesus has a body. We will have bodies at the resurrection. Seven, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven will be upon earth. There's this image. Did you ever read in the end of Revelation where it talks about this big cube that's coming down? It's basically the city of God and it's the throne of God. And Jesus is going to be here on earth with us. And the throne of Jesus is number eight. The throne of Jesus will be here in our world with us. So What that means is nothing harmful will ever be able to enter into the world again because Jesus will be here as king. That's fantastic. Were you able to put yourself into all of the scenarios? Probably not because they were too quick. But if if you can memorize what I just said, this will be online. You can listen to it again. But think through that. What will daydream about it? Because that's your future. right? You may never go to the Bahamas. But the Bible says that if you're in Christ, you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, coming into your your master's happiness. And then you can go to the Bahamas. But, you know, maybe not in this world. Okay, so that's what, those are eight truths about the resurrection. Uh, But then it still comes up, you know, well, how do we know? How do we know even that Jesus was resurrected? Because there are a lot of people in our culture still who say, uh, maybe they hallucinated it. Or maybe they made it up right? Well, this passage is extremely important for that because at one point there were 
500 people at the same time who saw the resurrected Jesus. That is a potent hallucinogen if they're all having the same hallucination at the same point, right? That's not it. So that, historians look at that and say, no, that can't be it. Or that people made it up. Well, modern scholars, virtually no modern scholars, believing or skeptical, say that the apostles made it up. Instead, they all say that Jesus' earliest followers appear to have had some sort of experience of a resurrected Jesus, and they seem completely sincere in what they were communicating and not having made it up. So you have your handout. We're gonna, that can go a long way in answering some of these questions. But I want to deal with two because these are two that I've encountered a good bit over time. The first one is this. What about the long period between the events and the writing? Because a lot of people say, you know, the events happened maybe about 30 AD or so, and then it wasn't written down for 200 or 300 years later when all these things were written down. And number one, that's not true because it was written down probably in the 40s through the 70s, you know, 10 to 30 years, 40 years afterwards. But that particular claim that, you know, that it took a long time has a kind of a, an underlying claim to it in that it's, it became legend over time, right? It's that telephone game. You know the telephone game where you have a group of kids and somebody starts off by saying, you know, my, my mother likes chicken. And by the time it ends up, it's like the Death Star blew up in Star Wars. It's like, how did you get from chickens to Star Wars? How did that happen? And it's because when people are telling the story, it gets changed and mangled over time, right? You, you know that, right? The problem is this passage. Because this passage uh, was written by Paul, uh, who probably died in 63 or so AD. And when he's writing to this, this is years before that. And he's got this little phrase here um, in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, the reason that's very important to what we're talking about for just a moment is because that phrase seems to be an early formulation, like a creed, of the early church explaining the resurrection of Jesus. And, according to Bart Ehrman, he's a professor at UNC, he's an atheist, he's one of the nation's most well-known outspoken critics of Orthodox Christianity, even Bart Ehrman says that little creedal statement you see right there was formulated within one year after the event. Within one year. So in other words, within one year, the facts of the resurrection of Jesus, the claims of the resurrection of Jesus had been codified, made into a little memory statement for the early church, so that when they were out talking to people, they could remember and just be able to say, here are the facts regarding Jesus, within one year. Now, did that have time to become legend? No. Within one year. And so historians look at that and say, well, there you go. Uh, it, it's too close uh, to be a legend. It must, something must have happened. And the best explanation is they saw a resurrected Jesus. That's why they claimed it. That's why they were transformed. Second thing uh, is, uh, that I've encountered before is the idea where people say, well, well, what about all the other resurrection stories in the, ancients, in the ancient world? Have you all heard that before where people say, well, you know, there were, there were lots of stories about gods and goddesses rising from the dead. What about those? So a few years ago, I had a conversation on, on a college campus with a young man who was, he was uh, involved with a group called the Secular Student Alliance. And so it was really 
kind of an atheist group for students on campus. And there was some big forum where atheists and Christians were talking. I got into a conversation with him at the end of it. And it was really cordial, really enjoyed the conversation we both did. Um, and this came up, this idea of resurrection story. So I'm just going to kind of walk through the conversation so you can see how this went. So the student uh, said, many people during Jesus' time claimed to be the Messiah, right? So other people said there would be a Messiah. Why should we believe the claims about Jesus? So the response is, and I'm getting this from a, a guy named N.T. Wright. He, did a, he wrote a big, thick book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. He's, he's really helpful on this. But what he said was, uh, was this, and I just quoted it back to this kid. Yes, but nobody claimed that a person was the Messiah after they were dead, right? When those would-be Messiahs were killed, crushed by the Romans, then nobody said anymore, well, he's the Messiah, and the Messiah got killed. What happened was when Jesus died, it killed all their messianic hopes. And then when they came back, they said, he rose from the dead. He is the Messiah. And this kid said, okay, that makes sense. So he brought up something else. He said there were all kinds of claims about gods rising from the dead in the ancient world. Nefertiti, Persephone, the, you know, Greek gods, Egyptian gods, those kind of things. And he said, so the Christians just borrowed from ancient mythology. Got that? Here's the response. That's true of ancient mythology. But there is no single incident in the ancient world of a real human being being claimed to be raised from the dead. Nefertiti, Persephone, those other ones, those were myths to explain spring, summer, fall, and winter. Because when those goddesses went down into the underworld, right, that's when fall happened and winter. And then when the, the goddess came back into our world, that's when spring happened and then summer happened. But in Florida, I guess, you know, they just kind of put their foot in the underworld and then they kind of come back. They just stay around all the time, right? And so, uh, but there, and then I said, there are no claims that one human being saw another human being just three days after they were brutally tortured in an empowered body that had no healing to be done, eating and drinking, performing miracles, and then ascending into heaven. There are no ancient claims like that. He said, wow, okay, that makes sense. That's a good point. And then he said, but well, maybe they did it to uh, gain power. And uh, I said, yeah, that's, that's a possibility. Uh, people do things for power. But saying someone has been raised, uh, uh, but saying someone has been raised from the dead is not the saying uh, that they're going to gain power. Because the exact opposite happened to the apostles. The followers of Jesus who claimed to see him raised from the dead, they didn't rise to power. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were murdered by the power structures of their day. They never gained power. So why in the world would they tell this to other people? It's because it was true, and they knew the higher power, and they knew that he'd been raised from the dead. And just like him, if they were to die at the hands of these power structures, they would be raised from the dead too, because Jesus has all the power. You see, as we begin to ask questions about this and try to take apart the resurrection, you can't. The only plausible explanation is that it really did happen. And that means you live in a world where Jesus was raised from the dead. You live in a world where someday everybody who's believed in him is going to be raised from the dead. And you live in a world where there's, there's judgment for the things that we do in the body. And believing in Jesus is the only way uh, to say we're going to be raised from the dead. And one of the reasons that uh, the resurrection is so incredibly important for us is because it speaks to 
It gives us incredible freedom because it speaks to the deepest longings of our hearts that will be fully met. It speaks to our longings. Yes, resurrection is the result of believing in Jesus and our sins are paid for and we go to be with him. But there are longings that are there too that are met. Let me talk about three with you for just a moment. Uh, who we will see, who we will be, and where we will be. The first one, who we will see. I can't wait for heaven, and I can't wait for resurrection. 2020, uh, my mother passed away from cancer. Later that year, Rebecca's father fell, broke his hip, had a reaction to the pain medication, went into cardiac arrest, and he died. This week, we, had, we have moths in our pantry, and my mother, just a few years before she passed away, had moths in her pantry. And Rebecca's driving around town, and I'm driving around town, we're wanting to call her and tell her about the moth. Hey, just remember how you had moths in your pantry? But we can't do that. So the, part of the longing of heaven is who we'll see, is the restoration of those relationships, and God acknowledges that. That's that First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 passage. It's fantastic. Because he's saying we will be with them. We will see them, all those who've gone on in Christ. But there's another reason that, about who we'll see. And I, let me just set this up a little bit for you using two different images. Uh, I knew a, a young lady several years ago who had uh, a thing for Rich Mullins. And some of you who've been in Christian circles for a long time, you know who Rich Mullins is. And those of you who don't know who he is, that's all right. It's good. But uh, in the 1980s, there was a lot of Christian my music that was being circulated and so if you've ever heard the song awesome god our god is an awesome god he, that one he sing your praise to the lord right amy grant made that popular but i'm pretty sure that rich mullins wrote that and so this girl was a roadie uh not really she wasn't paid she just followed him everywhere he went <laughs> every concert she's there rich mullins rich mullins rich mullins and so one day uh, she was at a uh, one of his concerts and uh, she had heard he drives a jeep and near the front, near the venue, was parked Rich Mullins' Jeep. And she thought, I want to go look in Rich Mullins' Jeep. So she went, and she's staring in the window, at the path, like through his driver's side window. And all of a sudden, she hears this voice behind her. And he says, what are you doing? And it's Rich Mullins. <laughs> so she turns around. And the, thing, the only thing she could think to say is, I was looking to see if you had any good CDs. <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments like if you've ever met that person that you admire and you think, I want to meet that person, and you finally meet them and you say something stupid, it's like, oh, I wanted to be their friend. Now they think I'm stupid. Yeah, you walk away from that, but then in the next five minutes, you're going, that was pretty awesome. I got to re meet Rich Mullins or whoever it happened to be. Um, okay, hold on to that for just a moment. Second image. I, I, I weep like a baby every time I watch one of those military reunion videos where the parents have been deployed and then they come home and they always want to trick their kids on camera at school you know and so you know it's like they pull off the mask and it's like it's it's whoever and sometimes a kid comes running but the ones that get me every time it was when the kid just drops i'm not gonna cry thinking about it up here right now it's when the kid drops head, his head or her head and just goes up and grabs and you can just feel the sob he's like ah just like all the relief, all of the joy of this reunion. And that's what he's saying here when it comes to our relationship with God. The person we admire most, who all the things we love, he's responsible for that. He made the world that we enjoy. He made me. He, he arranged my life with all the beautiful things that have happened. And now I get to see him 
and he's my heavenly father? And just to wrap my arms around the neck and say, you love me and I love you? How amazing is that going to be? This is from John Donne, an uh, old uh, Christian poet. Uh, I think we have the other Paul. Good. He said, uh, I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as that sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God Himself, who had no morning, never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I've seen Him, I shall never die. That's awesome. That's the longing of the heart of those who belong. I see Him. I get to be with Him. So it's who will see. But there's also the question of who will be. And uh, that's pretty important for us, too, because the, Bi- the Bible says that we're going to have resurrection bodies. No pains, no scars, no illness. Abilities we've lost over time will get back. Uh, as people get older and dementia sets in and they lose their personality and they shut down, they'll get that back. We get that person back. That's fantastic. But the Bible also talks about this. There's not just renewal of my body. There's renewal of our inner lives as well. There is full emotional, mental, and spiritual health that takes place. In my inner life, there'll be no sin, no insecurity, no fear of rejection, no comparisons to other... This is my inner life. This is not yours. No comparisons to other people, no regrets, no anger, no guilt, no emotional scars, no personal wounds, nothing holding me back from being the best me that I've always imagined I could be but never quite was able to be. There will be full purity, full honesty, full love, full contentment, full confidence, full humility, completely comfortable in my own skin, and so will you, and we will be perfectly happy. And all those changes have to take place or we will never be happy. There's this great line from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice where Elizabeth Bennet is speaking of her sister Jane. Jane has said to her sister, she says, I, I hope that you are, will be as happy as I am about you know, her engagement. And then Elizabeth says this, until I have your goodness... I can never have your happiness. Why not? Here's why. Because a person who is not truly good will always find fault with self and fault with other people and be ill-content and selfish. Always. Because we're not good. What God has planned for us is we will have His goodness. And as a result, we will have His happiness. So we will be happy. And we will be upgraded. Um, when Jesus showed up, he was doing things that you and I can't do in our bodies, and most theologians will look at that and say, that's not because of his deity, it's because of his uh, elevated and redeemed, restored humanity, his body. He did things that we will be able to do but can't do yet. And where we'll be, where we will be. Um, So who will see, who will be, and where we will be. Um, When the Bible talks about the future for us, it's not in a billowy existence in the clouds. It's back on the earth. And he uses some images that we think are are weird, like it talks about streets of gold and pearls and all kinds of things. And what it's communicating is where we're going is so much of an improvement of where we are. It's richer, it's, it's, uh, it's better built, all of those things. And so the images I was thinking, how do I wrap my mind around that? And here's, here's the, here's the best way I can do it. You know, uh, years ago, I can remember being a kid and loving cardboard box forts. Do you remember those? You get a big box, like the refrigerator box, you get in that thing, and it's a fort, it's a train, it's a ship, it's all kinds of stuff. You're in the box, and you think this is great. 
in my adult life, when my kids have asked me, when they were little, to come and get in the fort box with them, first of all, I have to fold my six foot three frame into whatever small shoe box they want me to get into. And as I'm crawling into it, there's that kind of like sickly shuffling sound of your dry hands on dry cord cardboard, you know. <laughs> and it, get, you know, it sends shivers down my spine. And then as you're crawling into the box with your kid, it's like, this is dirty. Are, is that roach-like shell right there? What am I crawling into, right? And so I was thinking, uh, compared to what Jesus has in store with the new heavens and a new earth, this is the cardboard box. We're in it now. And when we die and we go to be with Jesus and he remakes the world, uh, we're not going to be in a tattered, swishy, cramped cardboard box. We're going to be in something that's new and improved and beautiful. The world we experience right now will feel dirty and old compared to that. And this is what uh, John Calvin said. And it's, I think, is this on your thing, Paul? Just about what, hoping for what we have. He said, no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. We wait that. And so Christians have a very different view of death than the world around us. We always have. Um, but how can you be sure? Paul tells us in chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were saved. And he goes on to say, unless you believed in vain. So it's believing. We believe him. We believe that Jesus is exactly the person he says he is. We believe that, we believe that he has done exactly what he has said. We believe him when he says, when Paul says just a few verses later, it says that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That Jesus has done that and he's given it to us, given us salvation and heaven and promised resurrection apart from anything that we do. It's all by free grace. In fact, in verse 10, Paul says three times for him that it was, it was free grace. So the gospel is not, if you work hard enough here right now, maybe when you die, you can go to be with Jesus. That's not the gospel. And that's not what trans people's transformed people's lives in the first century. For these early Christians... They believe God has already given me eternal life, right? Death can't keep its hold on me. Someday I'm coming back. So that it wasn't if you work, then you'll be resurrected. The gospel is God gives you new life in Christ so that even when you die, you're going to go straight into the presence of God and you're coming back. You already have that in your possession. You just don't have it in its fullness yet. So we don't live differently so that we will be re resurrected, we live differently because we believe that it's guaranteed we will be resurrected because we already have the Spirit. We already have the promises. We already have Jesus' forgiveness. And so believing this produces freedom and resiliency. The resurrection of Jesus means, again, illness doesn't have the last word. Cancer doesn't have the last word. COVID doesn't have the last word. Russian armies don't have the last word. Grief doesn't have the last word. Tragedy doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the early Christians, they were transformed by this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, it says that the Christians joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property from people who were oppressing them. Why? Because they knew they had better and lasting possessions in heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I gain when I die. I don't lose. I gain when I die. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. Yeah, we go through sufferings, but we can go through these momentary, what he calls momentary and light sufferings because we know what's coming next. In the Middle Ages, we, they had their own version of, the, of uh, the pandemic, except it was worse, the Black Plague. And what Christians did floored everybody because as everybody was fleeing from the cities to get away from the Black Plague, the Christians were going into the city to take care of people, to minister to people. Why? Because they knew that death couldn't keep its hold on Jesus and it can't keep its hold on us. Christians have always had a different understanding about death. That death brings ultimate gain. For now, we have a job. We have, we have a task. We have a mission. We have people that we love. We're taking care of people. But when we die, we go to something that the Bible says is really fantastic. So what does it mean for you? Well, it, it means that you talk to yourself now in light of what is coming. You talk to those assumptions and thoughts that come into your mind. I forgot this phrase uh, until this week. I was in a Bible study and somebody mentioned YOLO. It feels like it's really old, right? It feels like that was probably like two years ago and now it's like, it feels like it was in like the 1890s. Didn't people talk about YOLO in the 1890s? If you don't know what YOLO is, it means you only live once, right? And so that means FOMO, which means a fear of missing out. I could miss out on all these wonderful things here, right? But let's go to what the Bible teaches. Yes, YOLO, you only live once, and in Christ it's forever. And if you have any fear of missing out, you're not going to miss out because you'll have an eternity not just to do these wonderful things here, but things that are better. So in this way, the life we have right now is standing at the glass of a candy store and looking in and imagining. You get the smells that are coming out from the candy store. But when you die and you go into the presence of Jesus and Jesus makes everything and we're resurrected, we're restored, new bodies, new taste buds, and all of a sudden we're in the candy shop the way that God intended. Isn't that good news? That's good news for me. It's good news for those who understand the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was killed at the hands of the Nazis for um, really trying to be in a plot to take out Hitler that failed. And this is what uh, Bonhoeffer wrote. He says, no one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour waiting and looking forward joyfully to be released to be with him. That's our sure and certain hope. It enables us to enjoy the world right now as God has given it to us, as the gift that it is right now, but to look beyond it to the longer story, the big story of, what, of Jesus coming into the world, cre creating us, the world falling, Jesus coming, redeeming us, and then someday, one day, Jesus coming back in the consummation of all things 
and making all things new, including me and including you and the people we've loved and lost in Christ. Can't wait. I'm homesick. Are you? Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.